Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we present to you our hearts tonight full of joy, gratitude, and thanksgiving for the blessing that this university has been and will be for all of us. And we entrust our time to Our Lady tonight, praying for the gift of purity so we can be free to love. As we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Joseph, pray for us. And St. John Paul the Great, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. I cannot tell you what a joy it is to be here to speak to you tonight at the best universe in the best university in the created universe. Um, it is awesome. And uh, just, just walking around campus today, I got to meet so many of you. And uh, just every step I took, all these memories just flooding back to me. I mean, just the memories when we had snowball fights inside the library one winter. Um, <laughs> memories sledding down the cafeteria trays in the snow. I notice I don't think you even have cafeteria trays anymore, so I'm sorry about that if those are now gone because of what we did with them. But. Um, uh, just the memories of uh, you know saran wrapping our household sister's car. Uh, it was always a lot of fun. And uh, just the, the priests, just the fellowship. I remember one priest when I was here, uh, Father Gus. Everybody loved Father Gus. He's about uh, you know, four and a half feet tall. Uh, he's about 80-something years old. He'd whip you with the knots on his Franciscan cord. Um, and everybody just loved him to death. And one, one day, he's, he's kind of walking towards the calf with a bunch of you know, Franciscan guys. And uh, the college guys are you know, all around him. And then up comes some you know, beautiful Franciscan University women. And, uh, and they walk up to him and they look, and he kind of gets this little puppy dog look on his face. And he said, Father, you know, how are you doing today? And he said, today's my birthday. And they said, oh, Father. And they, the guys said they suffocated this priest with more human affection than anybody deserves. Hugs, kisses, all this stuff. And then they leave, and he's just got this little grin from ear to ear. And one of the guys looked at him and said, Father. You're terrible. You know today is not your birthday. <laughs> and he looked at the guys and he winked and he said, that's how it's done, boys. <laughs> now, now, this is, this is, this is not necessarily the approach I'm going to advocate tonight to get affection from Franciscan women, but uh, it's a start at least. Um, you know, and you know, we know what we're here for. We're made for love, we want love. We don't often get to see it. Sometimes we don't often get to receive it. I got to see it about two years ago. I was, uh, my grandma and my grandpa, they'd been married for more than, I think it was 67 years. Uh, they had 10 kids. Their names were Joseph and Mary. I mean, it was a beautiful marriage. And what I loved the most is that they would flirt with each other constantly. Uh, I grew up watching this. I remember one day my grandma's in the kitchen. My grandpa's feeling you know, kind of frisky. And, uh, <laughs> He looks over and he sees her and he kind of walks over and whap and he hits her on the thigh and he says hi. <laughs> <laughs> He's, he said my name is Joe and she looks, looks at him she's like hmm, I know and I'm like oh they're a hundred and they're flirting I love it and then and then and, and she passed away about two years ago and I stood right beside him at her, at her casket and they're closing her coffin for the last time 
and he's real weak. He's had all these like knee and hip replacements and he's kind of shaking and he leans over and he gave her one kiss on the nose and he said, bye, babe. And I saw it and I'm like, that's it, man. I mean, that's what I want. Like, I want a love that's stronger than death. Not just a love that lasts, but not just one of quantity of years, but the quality of years. And a lot of people think, well, yeah, but that's our grandparents, Jason. Like, that's just not happening in our generation. Where do you find that? It's still happening. I know a girl out in LA, her fiance proposed to her, and when he proposed to her, he did so, he made a storybook of their love from the day that they met. And the first page says, Jessica, you can hear estrogen in the room. Uh, <laughs> when, when he, and so he gives her the book, and on the front page of the book, it says, Jessica, on the day I met you, I wanted to die. And she's like, oh, that's morbid. Um, and, and she turns the page, and then it says dot, 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 to myself. To love a woman more than I love me, to put your knees before my needs. And this is not some simple, like, something girl sentimentality they want. This is something, and I think a guy's heart, well, that's what I want too. Like, I want to find someone so much that I'd be willing not just to live for them, but to die for them. But it's not enough to want to find this kind of love. We need to know how to give it. We need to even be prepared how to receive it. But here's the problem. Relationships today, I mean, you know, it's a mess. I mean, it's an absolute mess. And a 50% divorce rate. I mean, a typical college campus, there's more people hooking up than even holding hands. And in high school, I mean, it's not like it was better back then. I spoke at high school in Texas. They had 87 girls pregnant on campus. Uh, didn't include the junior high, brought the number of pregnancies over 100. There was even a fifth grade girl pregnant there. And uh, one of the girls we met was seven months pregnant. She just told her parents, they had no idea. She was wearing baggy clothes and avoiding her mom and dad. And her current struggle is she didn't know how to tell her parents the full story, okay? And the full story is that her boyfriend lives in her closet. That's right, her boyfriend's been living in her closet for well over a year now. She brings him up leftovers after dinner, he hops out the window to hang out with friends. It's been going on for the year, the parents have no idea. And so the moral of the story is when you get back to the dorm tonight, check your roommate's closet. But uh, no, I assume things are going better at Tommy Moore. Uh, but this, you know, this almost, I mean, this unbelievable, just this breakdown in relationships, busted up marriages, and it's like, dude, where are we gonna look? Where are we gonna find answers? If you go to like, well, like a Barnes Noble or something, they got a billion books on relationships. Where do you even start? And one of the girls is a very prominent author, one woman, her name is Barbara Dr. DeAngelis, and she's an expert on marriage, but she's not on her first marriage, her second, her third, or her fourth. Apparently the woman's on her fifth marriage. Uh, one of the marriages was to Dr. John Gray. He wrote the book, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus. Yeah, the marriage experts got married, couldn't figure it out, and they got divorced. So where are we supposed to look? Well, I wanna look to the writings of an 80-something-year-old celibate, St. John Paul the Great, and what he had to say about human love. And because I think that the virtue that's a lot of times missing in the courtship process is that of chastity. Now, obviously, the words got tons of baggage. I mean, when I studied in Austria, we took a week and we went to the former Czech Republic on a weekend and we went to this castle Castle. And after going through the whole castle, at the end of it, they had a gift shop and you could buy chainmail armor and helmets and swords. And, and I wish I had bought it because they actually had a medieval chastity belt. And it had a padlock, it had spikes on it. I mean, the whole nine yards. And you know, I really wish I had got it because what a perfect visual aid for what the world thinks of chastity. It's just this prudish, Victorian, repressive attitude towards our sexuality. I mean, the world doesn't get it. When Crystal and I were engaged, we got a phone call from the BBC. They wanted to do a documentary on our engagement because they heard that we were neither living together nor sleeping together. So apparently news traveled to England that there's an American couple not cohabiting. So send the camera crew. So 
and I sent out all the cameras, and, and they filmed us for hours. They filmed me surfing with my groomsmen and her trying on her wedding dress the first time. They went on a date with us for hours, asking us always, why are you not sleeping together? And then they went back to England, and then they mailed us the footage of the TV show after it had already aired for all of the United Kingdom to see. Now, the TV show was called Anna in Wonderland, okay? It's about the woman who interviewed us, Anna, who visits different bizarre cultures around the world. And then, <laughs> and then she reports on their strange behavior back to England. And uh, I, 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 as the credits were rolling, it actually said, join us next week when Anna visits a colony of vampires. Uh, so next week is Edward Cullen and Bella, you know, it's my wife and I this week. And, uh, and, and I, I did some research on her, I mean, somewhat late, and she's done TV shows on female professional wrestlers, psychics, prostitutes, and people who believe they have animals living inside of them. And now, of course, my wife and I. Uh, but I think it, gives at least a fair snapshot on how bizarre and repressive the world thinks this whole concept of chastity is. And so, well, what is chastity? I mean, it's a virtue like courage or honesty that applies to your sexuality. But what chastity does is it not only frees you to love, but it actually frees you to know if you are being loved. Case in point, speaking at a public high school in Texas, this girl comes up and she's dating this controlling, possessive, abusive older guy. And I said, sweet, I mean, you're better than this. Just break up. And she said, I can't break up. I mean, Jason, I've given him everything. I mean, I gave him my heart. I gave him my virginity. I gave him my reputation on my dream. Like, I can't just let go. And I said, okay, I understand. But okay, just, just try this. Just tell him no more sex. Watch what happens. She said, okay, I can try that. She took her necklace off and gave it to me. She said, he makes me wear this. He's so possessive. I said, okay, I'll throw it away. And, uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and she left. And, and like five minutes later, she comes back. She's skipping and happy. She says, I dumped him. And I said, well, that was quick. She said, well, yeah, I, I told him no more sex. He slammed his locker shut. He threw a book at me. He said, where's your necklace? She said, I gave it to the chastity god. <laughs> and, but, you, you, you see what happened is like she tested his love. Like, do you love me? Do you want me? Or do you only want the pleasure that you're getting at my expense? I was down at Louisiana State University. College girl down there came home crying. And her mom said to her, well, what happened? And she said, well, I went on a date with that guy. And as soon as we got in the car, he started to make these little perverted jokes of what he wanted to do with me. And I told him, you know, no, I practice chastity. And he said, that's okay. There's lots of other stuff we can do, meaning everything but intercourse. And she said, no, I'm not sure you understand. Like, I respect my body, my future husband, and God. And he looked at her, and he's like, so you mean I'm not going to get anything tonight? She said, no, you're not. He said, okay. He turned the car around, drove her home, dumped her off, and he left. And she's never seen him again, and thank God. Because she could have given it to him for six months. Always wondered, like, does he love me? Is he in it for the right reasons? She didn't play that game. On day one, she tested his love. Because so often, when you think you're wanted by the other person, what's standing between you, what they really want, is that pleasure. I saw, it was like a Pepsi or Coke commercial, and there's this lady, this beautiful woman, and she sees this can of Coke or Pepsi, and she's just lusting after this thing. I mean, which I'm sure happens every day at the pub upstairs. And, um, <laughs> and she's just lusting after this. But caught between her and the can of Coke is this average looking guy. And, and he looks over and he notices how she's staring. He's like, oh, hey, she's really into me. And he gets over and he walks up to her and he's like, hi. And she's like, uh, who are you? Like, what do you want? And he didn't, and at that moment it dawned on him that he was never the object of her desire. Now, C.S. Lewis points this out well, and he has this quote where he says, we use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he, quote, wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. 
He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. How much he cares about the woman, as such, may be gauged by his attitude to her five minutes after fruition, for one does not keep the carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. Now, eros means that a man really wants not just a woman, but one particular woman. And so this is one of the beauties of the virtue of chastity, is it allows us to experience authentic sexual attraction to the entire person, not just to the values of the body or of pleasure. And this isn't something the church is just imposing on us. I mean, I saw this uh, magazine at the newsstand at the airport. It's The Economist, it's an international bi-weekly business journal, and it says on the front, the science of sexual abstinence. So I said, okay, I'll get a copy, see what they have to say. And the article says this, chastity before marriage may have its uses after all. Ah, who knew? And it, it says, so, so what they did here is they, they studied uh, 2,000, more than 2,000 married couples. Basically interview them, look, like when did you guys start having sex in a relationship and how are things going? And what they found across the board is that the longer a relationship waited before having sex, in particular those who waited until marriage, had across the board better communication, better sex, better satisfaction in the relationship, and a more stable relationship. And what's more authoritative, though, than The Economist is obviously the Word of God, which we're going to look to. But how do you do this? Like, I want love, but specifically. I think a lot of you were raised in Catholic homes, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school, homeschooled, life teen. And a lot of times you get out of high school, you get to college, and in high school you learn everything pretty much you're not supposed to do. And you graduate, and you're like, okay, I got this. Okay, no premarital sex, no contraception, no cohabitation, no porn, no, no cloning, no, you know, no, no IVF. Like, great, no. Okay, and then you get to college, like, great, I know everything I'm not supposed to do. And it's like, okay, well, what am I supposed to do? Oh, well, sorry, we don't cover that. Have fun in college. And you're like, you show up, it's like navigating through relationships, I think, can be pretty confusing. And so instead of tonight harping on like everything not to do, I want to look at what are we supposed to do? What are the thou shouts? to have a healthy relationship. So I think in the end, that's what we want more than a list of prohibitions. So I've came up with just basically a list of five to have this you know, lasting love. And you now the first one, first and foremost, is just enjoy the season of singleness. I think so often, you know, especially if you're, when you're at a campus like Franciscan, which has so many amazing men, so many amazing women, you immediately put on that like future spouse radar. You know, and you're like, yeah, you know, you know, oh, she's at the port. Oh, you know, she'll be canonized. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I mean, it's, but it's inevitable. And I'm, I'm not gonna bash that because there's something that we're longing for here. But I think what we've got to do is just take a step back. There, in the, the Song of Songs in the Bible, just beautiful erotic love poetry. And I mean, some of the stuff is just beautiful. I mean, you've ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. Now, now some of it you couldn't really say to a girl. You know, like, your hair is like a flock of goats. You know, it's not gonna, you know, your teeth are like sheep. Uh, you know, so, you know, compare her mouth to livestock. But uh, there's, but just look at the wisdom. You have ravished my heart, my sister, my bride. You look at the order of the words. First my sister, then my bride. I think in our culture, we're pushed in relationships so fast from the youngest ages. Like, you don't have a boyfriend? You don't have a girlfriend? Like, you've never kissed anyone before? What's wrong with you? Like, it's third grade. What are you waiting for? And it's like, this, and, 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 and you know I wish I was exaggerating, but you know it's that bad out there. And so we're, we're so often rushed into this, and, and we don't even know sometimes how to just start the relationship. I was speaking at the, the students at Catholic University, and I was talking talk about 400 college students. And I said, okay, I want you to just tell me, when was the last movie you saw that portrayed masculine friendship? 
You know that a man can be a friend to a woman without implying something immediately sexual. When was the last time you saw a movie that portrayed masculine friendship? Not a single college student could think of one. One guy put his hand up, he's like, I know. I said, what's that? He said, Finding Nemo. And I said, okay, like, you got me, you got me, okay. Like, they're, they're, they're fish, it's a cartoon, it doesn't count, but, you know, but, but what, a, what a commentary on how the society simply fails to show us masculine friendship, how to even begin the relationship. We get in these things so fast. And I think a lot of girls today get burned because they jump into the relationship. I mean, they meet the guy, he's cute. They start hanging out and texting and hooking up and making out. Then she starts getting like all emotionally attached to him. And she starts like stalking him on Facebook without him knowing. And she's like, dude, she's picking out her wedding dress on Pinterest. And she's only known the guy for like two weeks. And then three weeks into this thing, like man, like it hits her and she's like, oh man, you know, I didn't know he drinks. I didn't know he looks at porn. I, I, I didn't know he flirts with other girls. I didn't know he builds a methamphetamine lab in the dorm with his friends on Wednesdays. Like, I didn't know that. And it's like, you know, I mean, you know, thus, thus the point to, to take your time. But the, the, we jump in so fast. And then I, I got girls telling me like, Jason, I can't break up with my boyfriend. I can't. I mean, because he told me if I ever broke up with him, he would die without me. I'm like, honey, if he would die without you. He doesn't need a girlfriend. He needs a therapist, okay? But we're, we're prone to like get into these things so fast. But the beauty, I think, of kind of holding back a little bit, especially, you know, incoming freshman, you just got here. You know, it's so exciting. The temptation is to cling on to love so quickly. But I think if you want a kite to go up, you don't run with it. You hold back a little bit and that tension allows it to rise. And I think the same thing in human relationships. Take a step back. Now look at the benefits you get from doing this. A girl stepping back can say, okay, who is this guy? Who's so cute, who's so charming and fun and intelligent, but who is he? How does he treat his mom? How does he treat girls he's not attracted to? What do his ex-girlfriends think about him? Who are the men he chooses to surround himself with? You step back and get answers to these things. Ask yourself, okay, does he share my morality or does he tolerate my morality? Meanwhile, the guy can step back and think, okay, who, who is this girl? Why am I so attracted to her? Is it because she's just so cute or, or does she have virtue? Would I want a woman like this raising my children one day? And the, the period of the season of friendship lets you take a more sober assessment of the qualities of this person to step back a little bit. Because if we don't, a lot of times we get into like missionary dating, you know, dating someone, hope we could fix them and change them and, and convert them. And I think girls, unfortunately, are specifically guilty of this because you can see the potential in a guy. And everybody else like, well, can't you see he's got problems? Like, I know he has problems, but he smells good. I can't break up with him. You know, and, you know but there's... But we gotta understand, like, when, when going into the relationship, I mean, you only got one of two options. You're either gonna break up with this man or you're gonna marry him. That's it. There are no other options. Breakup or marriage is how every relationship ends. And that's why we should not date somebody unless we can see ourselves truly marrying this person. And if we don't know if they're worth marrying, then we obviously haven't spent enough time as their friends. And of the girls I dated at Franciscan, all of them started with just these simple friendships that gradually evolved into the relationships. And by keeping it not initially romantic, I think it helped us to make a better assessment of is this gonna be a good relationship choice? And during that time, you start to love her as a sister. And what John Paul II said is this, when a man and a woman are united in true love, each one takes on the destiny, the future of the other as his or her own. And I think this season of friendship kind of begins to solidify this. He said, the greater the feeling of responsibility you have for your beloved, the more real love there is. 
And I think this, this, this attitude in a relationship is solidified by that season of friendship. And so right now, instead of running around looking for your future spouse, Curtis Martin once said, look, don't run after who you think is your future spouse. Run after God with everything you have. And then after a while running, look and see who's keeping up with you. And those are the ones that you should begin to discern with. And so that's step one, is just begin with that season of friendship. Uh, point number two we get, from the, again, from the Song of Songs. The author says, beware. Let us catch the little foxes, the foxes that come in to steal the vineyard. Now, the vineyard is their love, and he says our vineyard is in bloom, but we have to catch these little foxes. So what are these little foxes that are getting into the modern college day relationship? I think for guys and girls, for both of us in a sense, it's impatience. Impatience perhaps on a guy to see too much of the woman too soon, impatience on behalf of the woman to reveal too much of herself too soon. And, you know, because in the end, it's not about just finding someone who has everything you want. We've got to be able to become the person that they deserve. And so we've got to sometimes root out some stuff. What is it for guys and girls? And these are generalizations, but for a lot of guys, it's, it's, it's pornography. And I'm not going to pretend like guys are the only ones who struggle with this vice. Because so often the girls who struggle with it think, man, Am I like some freak? Like, am I the only girl in the universe who struggles with this thing? I remember one girl saying, she's like, I don't even sin in a feminine way. And it was this misunderstanding that, oh, sexual sins, lust, oh, that's a boy thing. When in reality, we're in this together. But I obviously, I approach this from a male perspective. I mean, the pornography, I mean, all this stuff, I mean, you had it growing up. I mean, my buddies had it, my friends had it. First point I ever saw was like in second grade. I mean, we found some like dirty magazine in the street. I'm like, what's that? I'm like, hmm, nice to meet you. And I'm like, what do we do with it? My friend said, let's keep it. I'm like, where do we put it? And he said, let's put it at your house. I'm like, good idea. Uh, and, you know, and we get there. I'm like, I'm not putting it inside. I'm not getting busted. Like, I'd never seen porn, but I knew it was wrong. So I said, I know what to do. And crumpled them up in little balls, the pictures, shoved them into bushes in front of the house. We'd come outside and look at them whenever we wanted. The problem is, my dad trimmed the hedges Saturday afternoon, found porn growing on the plants outside. <laughs> Busted by the porn plant, but then like you got the you got the high school. I mean, dude, it was everywhere in high school. One guy in my high school passed out porn from his locker to anyone who'd vote for him as senior class vice president. He's in the hallway, vote for Travis, vote for Travis. Like I don't know where he's today. He's probably in Congress by now, but you know it was just <laughs> everywhere. And you know we would just we would just laugh it off and be like, oh, you know it's. It's not a big deal. I'm not getting in pregnant. You know, no one's getting hurt. And we'd make all these justifications. But now that I look back, I never realized at the time, but that basically in one afternoon of looking at porn, a guy can see more flawless women's bodies than any man in history could have ever have seen in hundreds of lifetimes. And you get it in one afternoon. Oh boy, you're back the next week, back the next day. You do it for a couple of years, jump in a marriage thinking you're gonna be captivated by one woman until death do you part. It doesn't happen. Uh, my, my buddy here in college, I mean, he had all the porn. I mean, nobody else really knew about it. But then he started dating this girl. I mean, we're all friends together, going to daily mass together, all this stuff. And they got married. And he's thinking, I'll throw it away when I get married. I went to the wedding. It's a beautiful wedding. All the Franciscan people there. Guy was divorced in three months. You know, all he did was take all that lust he had for porn, look at his bride that way. And the marriage is over as soon as it started. I mean, I remember one girl said to me, she's like, Jason, she's like, I found out my dad looks at porn. She's like, I used to look up to him. Now I can't even look at him. She's like, Jason, my dad's lusting after girls two years older than I am while my mom's sleeping in the next room. And then he wakes her up with a hug and a kiss at 7 a.m. She's like, it makes me sick how much I resent that man. Every guy in the room knows, well, it's not the dad I'm going to be. It's not the husband I'm going to be. 
That's why if we trash the porn tonight, we're being faithful to our brides before we even lay eyes upon them. Because I think what we don't often realize is that with every visual experience you have, you actually grow new brain. And you can see this if I were to say to you, okay, what's the fast, four, last four numbers of your cell phone? Boom, 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 you pu pull it out. Okay, what is a person you met during freshman orientation? One of the first people you met. Okay, you got their face. Okay, I want you to remember Christmas morning when you were a little kid. What's a cool present you got? Boom, the memories just come. Now here's the question, where were those memories before I asked you to recall them? Where were they? Just buried away somewhere in your brain. In the pornography, it gets stuffed in there like a bunch of junk just crammed into a closet. Oh, it's just, it's just back there, it's not impacting me. And then marriage opens the doors and then everything comes tumbling out of these effects of the porn that I never learned to love. Because how are we training ourselves? I remember when I was here at the university, I got to play three years of baseball for the team when we had a team. Uh, and, uh, and I remember, I remember one game very clearly. I'm out in the outfield, and the coaches, we're just getting blown out by this other team. And the coach is like, Ever, uh, come on in, I want you to pitch. And I'm like, oh, cool, I don't know how to pitch. This will be fun. And so I got, I'm like, you know I don't pitch. And he's like, yeah, but you got a good arm. Just get up there and get us through a couple innings. I don't want to waste the pitcher's arms because we're just getting blown out. I'm like, okay, let's have fun. So I get up there. Now, I have no idea what I'm doing. I mean, no idea. I mean, I've thrown batting practice, but that's not the same. So I get up there, and I don't have a curveball. I don't have a knuckleball. I don't have a fastball. Like, I, I have a baseball. Like, that's all that I have. And, I, you know, and, and, and so I get up there, I'm on the mound, I'm like, dude, what do I do? And I said, I know what I'll do. I'll just play games with the guy's head, who's at bat. So if you ever watch a baseball game, the catcher throws you a sign. You know, okay, give me a fastball. And you shake your head if you don't want to throw that pitch, and you want to throw something else. So he's like, and then, okay, give me a curveball. And then you say, no, I don't want that. So I get up there, and, I, and you know, Kurt squats down, he puts the mitt out, he drops a one. And I'm like, no. He's like, okay, two. I'm like, mm-mm. <laughs> three, and I'm like, nope, not that one either. He's like, four, and I'm like, uh-uh-uh. Now he starts laughing because he's running out of fingers. Uh, and he understands, and he gets up to like seven, and I'm like, yeah, that's the pitch. You know, and then I'm, I hit the guy with the pitch. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, what can I say? I tried, but the, the, the moral of the story being that if you train yourself for years and decades of lust, 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 and then the day comes to love, like all you can do is compensate because you haven't trained yourself in that skill. And the problem is what happens is the college guy hooked on lust. I mean, I was speaking at a high school and this teacher said, it's an all girls high school. And she said, I knew a couple of college guys that graduated from all boys school and they're off at college and they came back for spring break. So I said, hey, could you come and talk to my high school girls about how to practice your faith in college? And they're like, yeah. So like a bunch of guys show up and it came up during the classroom discussion that one of them looks at porn. And he's like, well, what's the problem? And the teacher's like, well, well, don't you think that that could kind of, you know, create a problem in your, in your future marriage? And he was perplexed. He said, well, I don't think so. He's like, well, isn't that what a wife is for? And at that point, 30 high school girls annihilated the man. I mean, they <laughs> tore him to shreds. And it, it dawned on him like, okay, well, I, I guess this is not actually what a wife is for. And so what happens is if we've immersed ourselves in years of looking at porn, like I had, I mean, year after year after year, I mean, you have to begin to actually learn how to actually look at a woman. 
because you get these porn goggles where the very sight of a woman triggers lust. And we think, well, that's just the natural reaction. I'm a guy, that's what happens. And so as we go through this healing process, it's like, okay, how do I even look at a girl properly? What are we supposed to do? And one thing that I've found to be helpful is that you're always told, well, well, don't look. I mean, you know, sex is bad, so you just you gotta look away. But you know when you do that, something in you is at war. Okay, it's bad. But then something is like, but it's not bad. It's very good. God said it was very good. So what I've found to be helpful is when you see a beautiful woman, remember Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord mighty God. And so when you see her, say that when you see her. You don't have to read the entire psalm while looking at her. I mean, just the first verse would suffice. But what about the idea of battling lust with gratitude? Huh, where did she get that beauty? And learning, okay, how do I look at women? Do you have on this campus 1,000 temptations to hell, or do you have 1,000 reminders of the beauty of heaven? Which is it? And so if we can begin to transform the way we look, purity can become, I think, a little bit easier. Because a lot of Christian guys, I think, totally give up on chastity because they think that sexual desire is lust. And as if you think sexual desire is lust, you can't get rid of your desires, and so you think you're always going to be failing. And I spoke at the Focus Conference about a year and a half ago. There are thousands of college students, and these guys came up that were serving on net international evangelization team and they said Jason he's like dude here's the deal he's like we're all in that together and we're in this van with like four other girls and they're like Jason they are beautiful they are virtuous they are intelligent and they're like Jason we're sexually attracted to them I'm like okay let me get this straight you are sexually attracted to beautiful women that you're locked in a van with for months on end and they're like yeah and I'm like yeah you should probably go to counseling for that you know you just gotta, you gotta get I mean something's clearly going wrong there uh, and they they, they, they sense my sarcasm here. Like, the problem isn't that you have the desires. I'd be more concerned about you if you did not have those desires. The question is like, okay, now what do I do with it? And a priest told me once, he said, look, there's a difference between having a bird fly over your head and letting it make a nest in your hair. And so what I have found to be helpful is to remember that, okay, the woman's body, from the Garden of Eden, the woman's body was an invitation to Adam to love. The sight of her naked body was an invitation to love. And it's not enough to reject the invitation. Nope, not gonna lust, sex is bad. We have to accept the invitation to love. So often we've taken that invitation and we've turned it into lust. So what I'd say is when that pop-up ad happens, that immodest billboard, you have to respond to the beauty with love. So how do you respond to a billboard with love? You turn off the radio and you pray a rosary for that model on the billboard. You respond to her with love. You fast for her. When the flashbacks of the porn come back, and I know how they can stick in there for years, okay, instead of like, I, I can't think about that, because that doesn't work. It's like, don't think about an elephant right now, okay? Nobody think about an elephant right now. Elephant, elephant, flop your big nose. You're gonna go nuts. Okay, so let's try something different. Okay, she came to your mind, that image that's burned in there. Okay, you pray for her right now. You drop into a decade for her. You run over to the port, you know, and you pray for her. And then you're transforming the temptation into intercession. And I found the devil kind of starts to leave you alone because then you're taking what he's throwing at you and you're turning it against him for the glory of God. And so these little strategies that I've found to be helpful, you start to learn, okay, purity isn't about killing my desires. It's not about like throwing a bucket of water on a fire. Purity is about throwing lighter fluid onto that fire. It's about setting it ablaze. I mean, a better image could even be wind, that if you blow wind onto a little flame, a little you know, birthday candle, it just puts that thing out. It's like if a love is just a little bit of lust and you just blow on it with purity, it kills it. But if it's a substantial fire, a bonfire, and you blow on it, it inflames it. And so the function of purity is actually to intensify love. 
John Paul II said, as we grow in chastity, you grow in an ever greater awareness of the gratuitous beauty of the male and female bodies. So it's not about killing desires, it's setting them ablaze. So if a lot of guys struggle of wanting to see too much too soon, I think a lot of girls struggle in being tempted to reveal too much too soon. In Love and Responsibility, John Paul said that in order for women to understand modesty, he said you first need insight into the male psychology of how different we are. So women constantly, because you're bombarded with these bogus expectations of what your bodies are supposed to look like, you're, you look at your body and what you hone in on, what you do not like. I wish I could fix that. I wish that was different. I wish my earlobes are more even. I wish my, I mean, you nitpick the heck out of yourselves. And so what you lose sight of is that the woman is the most beautiful thing God put on earth. I mean, it is obvious. I mean, what do guys get addicted to on the internet? Looking at like flamingos or something, like waterfalls? Like, oh, my roommate caught me looking at rainbows on the internet again. It was a double rainbow. It looked like a triple rainbow. What does it mean? Well, nothing. Nothing gets even close to the beauty of the woman. And you can see this in scripture. I mean, the second creation account in Genesis, the woman is presented as the crescendo of creation. The God makes the sun and the stars and the moon and the bugs and the cows and the man and then the woman. And when Adam sees her, I mean, he's beside himself. I mean, he sings this hymn, behold, at last, this one is flesh of my flesh and bone of my bones. He's like, whoa, man, that's where we get woman from in the Hebrew. Well, not really, but, uh, you know, he is, he's beside himself. And I think what's kind of funny is when, when Eve first sees Adam, she doesn't say anything. She's like, ah, that's nice. Like, come on, you know, but, but the, the point, the point behind all this is to understand that your body, that you view, and I'm not saying women aren't sexually attracted to men. I mean, that's obviously a ridiculous generalization. But the fact is that the men at the sight of the woman's body needs to be reminded, the first call of my body is for you to love me. And sometimes when we see too much, we don't see the full person. Sometimes we only see the body. And what becomes challenging is when there's girls walking around and they think that uh, pants or tights are actually pants. When I just want to, for the record, pants, tights are not pants, okay? I just want to, just a little footnote. Uh, and when the guy sees this, he has to actually make an effort to remind himself, no, she's more than that. And so through modesty, you're actually revealing more of yourself to us by inviting us to remember what is most important about you. And I remember when I dated a girl in college here, I mean, I'd never really dated like girls that dress modestly. And there was something captivating about that. It's like, wow, like she's trying to say like, you know, my body is not the best thing I have to offer the universe. It's good, but there's something greater, which is me. And so you will not lift the veil over this body until you lift the veil over my face. And this respect that she had for herself was I was like, oh, I gotta write that down in my notebook. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm putting that on Instagram tonight. Uh, you know. but, but to understand, I mean, with modesty, you know, I'm not just trying to encourage you, like, well, try not to hook up with a guy this weekend. You know, no, I'm calling you this, like, to become possessors of a radiant purity that makes men want to be deserving of you. Because you'll notice the more pure a man is, the more masculine he actually becomes. The more pure a woman is, the more authentically feminine that she becomes. And it doesn't matter what your past is. I mean, my wife just found a quote the other day, and it said, it doesn't matter how dirty your past is, your future is spotless. And, and so to realize you can't gauge your value on something that happened in the past. Lots of girls do this. But jeez, I mean, if a good guy ever found me and found out the stuff that I've been through, what good guy would really want me? 
I just tell him, look, if a, if a guy judges you because of your past, you trust me, he's not that good of a guy. I mean, you gotta hold out for someone that sees your future and not just the past. And so I think with modesty to realize that it's so much more than just you, what you wear. By the way you dress, that you carry yourself, you're sending an unspoken invitation of love. And so as we move through these steps, you know, first, enjoy the season of singleness. Secondly, we gotta beware of these little foxes. What do I need to root out out of my own life to be ready to give and receive love? Third point is you gotta face your fears. And they say courage is not the absence of fear, it's the judgment that something is more important than your fears. So what are the fears for a man? Like what are the fears of a woman? I think for a lot of the guys, the fear is initiating, committing, and giving. Pope John Paul II said that we men, he was speaking to college guys, and he said we men are quite ready to take and conquer in terms of profit, enjoyment, gain, and success. And then the moment comes to give and we hold back because we are not prepared to give. He said this is all the result of the fact that we men do not have a deep enough interior life. And, and, and so he was calling us that you've been created to give of yourself, but the world tells us, well, you don't want to, I mean, you don't want to get all tied down. And then you do get married. They're like, well, you don't want to have too many kids. I mean, my goodness. And my, my wife and I had our second. People are like, well, you're done, right? You know, and then we had our first girl. And then I'm like, well, you're finished. And I'm like, yeah, I've collected all of the genders. I can stop procreating now. Like, what are you talking about? But, you know, we, we live in the, this culture where, I mean, we even, we're afraid of our own fertility. I asked a bunch of high school guys, hey, what's the number one STD? One guy's like, oh, I know, pregnancy. I'm like, no, like kids are not bacteria. You know, but we're, I think we're kind of immersed in this culture that really gives us, I think, a false sense of, of freedom. But John Paul II said that, you know, he said, when speaking of guys, he said, we men should sing hymns of praise to God the Father for the reflection of himself, not only in our souls, but also in our bodies. That men should actually sing, sing hymns of praise to God for this reflection of self, himself in our bodies. Now what this means, I think, for guys, if our fear is initiating love, I think because of original sin, we initiate either, one, we either initiate lust or we initiate nothing. And so what I think God is calling us out of our shelves to do is actually do what we're created for. Because look at the body of a man. The body of the man bespeaks his spiritual reality. That you stamped in your body is that you are the initiator of life-giving love. It's stamped into the male anatomy. You're the initiator of life-giving love. And so we have to initiate it. I mean, the best homily I ever heard at Franciscan was, it was I remember we were out in the tent where the big new gym is that you guys have that we never have that I'm really jealous about. Uh, and so we're at a big conference there. And, and it was the beginning of the year, there's probably, I don't know, I think it was like a whole student body under this big tent. And you know, the friar gets up there, I remember Father Ron, and he, he's, yeah, oh, he was awesome, you know, and he gets up there, and this is homily. He says, uh, ladies, please raise your hand right now if a guy at this campus asked you out on a date this week. And a very small number of hands went up. And that priest spent the rest of the homily drilling into the guys for failing to initiate dates. You should have seen the girls. They were like, hallelujah, Father. <laughs> Preach on. Can I have a witness? And, uh, you know, and, you know, those girls were in love with Father Ron from that day forward. But you know what? We loved him more because he just said it as it was. I saw a priest once who said, don't be an indecisive wimp hoping for an apparition. Trust in God and pop the question. 
And so we've got to initiate this. I saw a, a, a beer commercial. I know not all of you are of the age to drink, so I don't want to contribute to the delinquency of minors, but it's a really good beer commercial. Uh, and in it, it was, a, it was one of those Dos Equis beer commercial, you know, the most interesting man in the world. The guy's, you know, like, oh, stay thirsty, my friends. And, uh, and, uh, and so he's, and, and the commercials are kind of creepy. I mean, because he's always sitting there at like a bar with all these beautiful women that are like young enough to be his granddaughters. So it's like kind of creepy, but he's sitting there, and, you know, the beautiful woman around him, and he looks at the camera and he says, it doesn't take two people to talk to one woman. I'm like, mmm, I like it. Initiate, go. And that's what we're supposed to do. But the challenge is, nobody gives us specifics on exactly how to do this as guys. I really feel for most modern guys, because the best advice you get is, well, just, hey, just, just be, a, be a gentleman, you know? And, and we're like, okay, what, what does that mean, be a gentleman? Go ask like a high school boy, what's it mean to be a gentleman? He'll be like, well, if there's a door and then the, the, there's the girl, then you open the door for the girl. Okay, well, good, 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 good. Okay, what else, what else, what else? He'll be like, um, if, there, if there's another door, then that door also you open for the girl. Let's stretch a little bit here. Um, and what, what stinks is nobody gives us specifics. And then we kind of go out into the world of relationships and we just aren't quite entirely sure what to do. And then we typically take the blame for just doing it wrong. And we're hungry, we just want specifics. Boston College, a university professor there, was kind of fed up with the whole hookup culture. And so she gave students extra credit if they actually went on a date. He, she said, I want you to go on a real date. It cannot involve kissing, alcohol, or sex. You may not ask her out through a text message. You may not ask her out through Facebook. You have to ask her out face to face. And the students were really intrigued by this. And here's some of the things that the students said. One guy said, um, he said, look, he says, it's easy to hook up with someone you've just met in a dark room after having a few drinks. But asking someone out on a date in broad daylight when you can actually have to know their name can be really scary. And so in the classroom, when she says, I want you to ask a date, one of the guys said, how would you ask someone on a date? Like the actual words, like what would you actually say? And there was this, this hunger there to know specifically how are we supposed to do this? And I think on a campus like Steubenville, I mean, it's tough for guys, it is. Because there's like this pressure of like, well, if you ask her out on a date, I mean, you know what's gonna happen. You know, but someone's gonna see like, did you see them? They were praying a rosary together at the tomb of the unborn children. They are gonna get married. I know it, they have matching scapulars. I mean, it's totally meant to be. They are gonna get married, they're gonna live out the theology of the body, and they're gonna make a total gift of each other and free, total faithful, fruitful love. And it's like, whoa, dude, I just prayed a rosary with her. Just like, relax, everybody. And, and there's this, this, this pressure, and it, it's kind of tough. And so I think to, to work through that, I mean, it helps, I think, to have some specifics. You know, one of the specifics I like to throw out there, you know, and I don't say this, I've mastered all of this, like, but like one thing is, as a single guy, just don't ever flirt, like never flirt. Instead of flirting, what you do, discern if you should be in a relationship with her, then pursue her with sincerity, and then commit to her with clarity. And this isn't just some robotic formula. I mean, you don't just, you know, follow some girl to the port and be like, I've discerned I should pursue you. It's like, okay, <laughs> Catholic stalker, uh, you know. You know, no, you gotta, you know, you, you pace yourself, obviously, but uh, just the, the principles of this. And then when you, when you do have an opportunity to go on a date, you know, make sure you, you plan the date. You know, don't be sitting around, what do you wanna do? Uh, what do you wanna do? I don't know, let's play Angry Birds. Like, like no, like, like, 
plan something. And then when you get to the, like, let's say you go out to dinner, make sure as the man, you, you pick her seat for her. Not because I'm a man, I'll tell you where to sit, but because if there's a beautiful view of the Ohio River, uh, you want to give her the beautiful view. If there's no view, then you want to take the seat facing the wall so she knows during dinner your attention is, is on her and not on ESPN or the cute little hostess walking by, and it makes her feel honored. And you say this to teenage guys, and they're like, oh, that's good. <laughs> you know, because, I mean, we, we, we just want specifics. You know, I gave this talk similar to this one. It was either I was in Michigan State University or University of Wisconsin, and a guy comes up, and he's like all jittery. He's like, Jason, he's like, he's like do you have gum? And I'm like, yeah, I got gum. You know, as I reach my back, I'm like, here. He's like, I'm going to ask a girl out right now. I'm like, yeah, giddy up. Go get up. You know, but there was, there was, you know, obviously you want to don't forget the discern part, you know, but there's this almost... Almost a freedom and be like, okay, it's all right to get rejected. I mean, because the whole purpose of why men typically initiate relationships is not to control the situation, but be to take the burden of the fear of rejection off of the woman and place it on the man. So he's got to deal with the burden of rejection. She doesn't have, shouldn't have to deal with that. And so it's always a sign of honor that he initiates the relationships. And if a guy is passive, I, don't, I think he's kind of out of place. And I'm not saying that passivity is the woman's job. Absolutely not. I think some girls fall into that of just like, oh, well, he'll, he'll come, you know, he'll come one day. It's like, it's like, it's like, Ingrid, you're 97 years old. It's like, he'll come, he'll come. If he works for UPS, he's gonna come to your door, but if he doesn't, you're out of luck. And, and you know, so, you know, don't get me, I'm not saying a girl's job is to be passive, but I'm just saying, if a man is passive, he's, he's just, I don't know, he's kind of out of place. Women very often, you'll notice in art, are very often depicted at leisure. That they're just sitting there and they're at rest just being the woman. And you know, she's sitting there and she's got a blanket and a bowl of fruit. It's like, great, you know, I'm, I'm happy for you and your fruit. Um, you'll, you'll notice what's missing from art is there's no art of men like this. I mean, could you imagine like an art of a guy just in a blanket is like, yeah, I got, I got avocados. You know, I got, <laughs> Kiwis. It's like they keep creeping me out. And I, and it, it's, it's not just, it's just not just historical art. I mean, even today, like you go to a mall, they got these like, ca, ca, you know, these calendars of like these supermodels and, you know, bikinis draped over the hoods of Mustangs and, you know, Ferraris. And you'll never see a catalog with like a man in his underwear on the hood of a car. I mean, like, what would happen if you walked out of here and you saw in the parking lot in front a guy in his underwear on the hood of a car? I mean, first you'd call campus security, okay? You'd, Second, you would definitely take a picture, send it to his household brothers, because that's really funny. But, but, but what would you say to the man? Would you be like, dude, get off the car. Like, you know, you know, put on some clothes, change the oil, get a job. You know, you're gonna dent the car, get off. Because there's something off if, if the man is just passive. And some people will accuse me. Well, Jason, you know, you're really gender stereotyping. You bet I am. Uh, because we happen to be different. And some people are like, but Jason, I mean, a girl should be free. I mean, if she wants to make the first move, she should just like Cosmo. Go, go, you go kiss the guy. You make the first move. You ask him out. Okay, fine. I'm not gonna stop you from doing that. Go ask him out. And some people, well, she should be able to ask him to marry her. Okay, go for it. You know, but if you have to ask him to marry you, all I ask for is that on that wedding day, you sing, here comes the groom, okay? And I want, I want those doors to swing open from the back of the church, and I want the bride up front, and I want the doors to come open, and that groom to walk down, and they start, here comes the groom, you know, all dressed in black, you know, he's such a pansy, better send him back. Uh, you know, so, initiate, okay? Fair enough? And, uh, you know, in this, 
you know, I know, I know this gets some people cranky, but you know what? We're, we're so different as men and women. Sociologists in the 1980s in particular came out with this idea that, well, you know, men and women are actually the same. But because of cultural, you know, conditioning, men take on these characteristics and women take on those. But we're basically the same, except your culture says, oh, your girl, it's pink, it's dolls, it's dresses. But we're basically the same. So one sociologist set out to prove this. And she said, I will show that my daughter is basically the same as a boy. And so I'm going to give her gender neutral toys. She will have guns, she will have dresses, she will have trucks, she'll have everything. And you'll see she'll just come out gender neutral. And she said, I'm getting very frustrated in this study because she said, every night, my daughter insists on tucking each of her trucks to bed at night. Good night, trucky, good night, trucky, good night, trucky. It was, it was built into her and we're just different. I mean, you can watch it right now. I mean, girls, look at your fingernails right now. I mean, every girl, look at your, you look, look at your ring. Now, every guy, I want guys to look at their fingernails right now. You'll notice, now, the vast majority of women typically will do this. Like, like there's like a four carat ring, you know, waiting to appear on her finger. The guys, more often than not, go like this. Like there's like a food underneath. Well, I got a barbecue sauce under that one. You know, now, now, if, if you did it wrong, that's okay, okay? There's, I'm not gonna, you know, not pointing any fingers here, but you can, you could go try this. Try this later on someone who's not here. If it's a girl, tell the girl, look under your foot. If it's a boy, tell them, look under your foot. The girl almost always will go like that. The boy almost always will stick the foot out front. Like, why does this happen? Is this gender stereotyping? There's something going on here. They found the male and female brains are unbelievably unique. The woman's brain, between the two hemispheres of her brain, has a tissue, connective tissue, called the corpus callosum. Now, the woman's brain literally has millions of more connective fibers between the two hemispheres of the brain. So you can experience a memory, an intuition, verbalize it, and tie it all together. They found when a man is arguing, he actually uses only half of his brain. Uh, I, I mentioned this at a high school, and one girl's like, yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. And then one guy's like, yeah, we want to make it fair. And like, like, oh, break it up, break it up, stop, stop this. It's complimentarity, people. Uh, but what's fascinating is when you, when you go in deeper into the masculine and feminine neurology, what they discovered, they did this fantastic test where they took husbands and wives and hooked their brains up to little brain scans so you could watch the activity going on. And what they would do is say, we are going to shock your spouse with an electric shock in a few moments here, and we're gonna watch what goes on in your husband's or your wife's brain. So what they would do, they hook up and they'd say to the wife, your husband is going to be shocked in three, two, one, pop. And what they found in the man's brain, boom, it reacts. What they found in the woman's brain, boom, she reacted the exact same. Like she felt the pain in her own brain of her husband feeling this. Now what they found is they were unable to duplicate this phenomenon in the male brain. Where they, they your wife is going to be shocked in three, two, one, pop. Oh, uh, how you doing there, honey? You all right? You know, said, it didn't happen, it just wasn't going on. And so, you know, all this, you know, funny stuff, you know, we're just different. And it, we don't have to be equal, we don't have to be identical. Alice von Hildebrand once said to me, she said, oh yes, men have power in what they do, but she said, women have power in who they are. 
And there was something rich there that I think sometimes we miss out on when we're so busy trying to make sure everything's even Stephen. So if a man's struggle is kind of initiating and giving and committing, what's the feminine struggle? I think more often than not, it's the fear of aloneness, that I'm not even worth pursuing, that I'm gonna, you know, I'm just not, I'm not enough. I'm not this enough, I'm not that enough, and so I'm just gonna end up alone. And if this is a deep fear, then she wants to compensate for that. And it begins sometimes by lowering of the morality. Okay, I, I can't be naive. I can't quit living in the 15th century. I gotta, you know, I gotta loosen up a little bit. Maybe show a little bit more skin, maybe go clubbing a little bit more. And she begins to lower the standards. Then what happens, I think, is disappointment, because that doesn't end up finding you love. And then after disappointment comes a bit of justification. Well, I mean, it's not like I'm doing this with a guy. And I'm not as bad as those girls over there. The justification. And then after the justification, a bit of resignation of just like, okay, well, I, I guess it's just the way it is. I mean, <laughs> I don't, I'm not 12 years old, this fairy tale romance, perfect Prince Charming is gonna come, and something starts happening, maybe even a little bit of despair. Remember one girl told me, she said, I feel, after that relationship, she said, I feel like the gross stuff in the road after the snow is melted and cars have been driving on it for a while. She said, that's what my heart feels like after that relationship. And what happens is after this numbness, I think, sets in, you know, this despair, and then, then like a numbness of just like, well, yeah, look, I can hook up with a guy. I'm not gonna get all teary-eyed about it if it doesn't work out. I mean, I'm a sexually liberated woman. I can hook up and not be all devastated the next morning. I think what happens in this heart of a woman is there's a numbness. If you get a first-degree burn, it, it hurts. Second-degree burn, it's red and it's blistered. It's painful. Third-degree burn, the skin is dead. It's black, it's charred, the nerve endings are shot. You could stick it with a needle, you wouldn't feel a thing. I think this is what's happened so often in the hearts of young women that may have been burned in the past they build up this mile-high wall around their heart. They may have no boundaries around the body, but around the heart, it's almost impenetrable. And so how do you reverse all of this to where she can actually be vulnerable and safe and actually hope for love again? I think the key is actually trusting in God instead of ourselves, because he knows the desires of your heart. And I really believe that God answers your prayers. I really do. When I was in New Zealand, they had a, some nuns out there that wanted to have a Christmas play. Now, one of the nuns was very extravagant. She wanted a real donkey, real baby Jesus, real hay, real the whole nine yards. And they said, you know, that's great, but you know, sister, we do live in New Zealand. There's no native land mammals here. So where are we gonna get a donkey? So she said, St. Joseph. I mean, St. Joseph got a donkey for Jesus. He'll get a donkey for us. Well, good logic. So they did a novena to St. Joseph, but the sister said, I wanna take you all the nuns and I want you to draw a picture of a donkey on a piece of paper. Put that under your pillow, so when you go to bed at night, you'll feel the paper, you'll pray for the donkey, you'll wake up, you'll feel the paper, you'll pray for the donkey. So they did this for about nine days, and then some strange guy shows up at the convent with the donkey, and they're like, oh, praise God. And they looked at the donkey, and it had no tail, just nothing, just a flat, and they're like, well, you know, donkey's a donkey. And the sister said, wait a minute, and she, they started pulling out their drawings, and they discovered every single nun forgot to draw the tail upon her donkey. So, the... Moral of the story is when you ask God for something, it helps be specific. And then I went over to New Jersey, and there was a convent of nuns there that had a program called Adopt a Nun, where you could financially take care of the living expenses of a retired nun, and in exchange, she'd pray for whatever you wanted. Now, I don't know how that gels with canon law, but they pulled it off, and so the, the media shows up. We'd like to adopt a nun, and then do a story about this. They said, have you had miracles yet? And he said, oh yeah, we've had miracles. They said, what? They said, look, call this married couple. They called them up. And I said, look, we've had miscarriage after miscarriage after miscarriage. So we couldn't have a kid, so we adopted a nun. And we asked her to pray that we would have a family. And he said, look, 
Here's the letter we got from the convent. Dear Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so, thank you for financially taking care of me. In exchange for your generosity to me, not only will I be praying for you, I will have every nun in the, in the convent praying that you would have a family. But she said, be careful. Sometimes you ask God for an apple and he wants to give you an orchard, signed Sister Mary So-and-so. And in case you're, you're curious, their quadruplets were born on Father's Day, okay? So have we, so have we, have we perhaps given up and trusting in God and begun trusting in ourselves perhaps a little bit too much to abandon to him? And during this time, this is for guys and girls, if you're single, heal. Take this time to heal. It, like you really need to look in your hearts. Like, do I have junk going on that is really gonna end up being stuff in a marriage that I don't need to bring into that sacrament? Do I need to go to counseling? Do I need to really break free of this addiction? Because my wife is very open and forthright about her past and the stuff that she had done with guys, the lifestyle she lived. And she says, you know, to be honest, she said, girls, she said, Jason, girls are masters at stuffing their stuff. You know, Jason, stuff happens to girls, like really serious stuff, and they just stuff it. They put their makeup on, their hair looks great, they got a pair of new jeans, they got it all together, don't they? But she said, inside, we're like a mess. We're afraid to start crying, because then we're afraid we're never gonna stop crying. So we just numb ourselves with false consolations. You know, having another beer, smoking some weed, hooking up with the boy, eating disorder, cutting ourselves. She said all of it's just being done to numb the wound that isn't being healed. So she said girls need to learn to face it, to own it, and to heal it. And so if you, in the depths of your heart, know maybe, maybe counseling would be kind of good for that stuff I never dealt with. At this campus, they've got a wonderful counseling department. Take advantage of this while you're single because in marriage, one of the purposes of marriage is the sanctification of the spouses where your faults will rise to the surface like oil and water so God can purify them. But if we can heal ourselves prior to the sacrament, I think it makes for a stronger marriage. So we're not entering into a relationship, perhaps looking for the love that only God himself can give to us. And if we can see this and we're saying, okay, it's not about just waiting around for Mr. Right to come. This time of singleness is a time of active preparation for that sacrament by finding healing in my own life as male and female. Now, point number four. So we kind of faced the fears, we did all that. Now, when it comes to the relationship, make commitment clear. None of this kind of dating things with the online dating. You know, I would really, as much as possible in college, absolutely discourage online dating. After college, mate, whatever, down the road. You know, there's some good sites, Catholic dating, whatever, you know, Ave Maria singles, whatever. I mean, there's some decent ones. But what's going on here is, you know, I know one guy, this is a high school guy, and, you know, he says, Jason, here's the deal. He said, and he sent me this huge email. It's like 10 pages long. All the relationship drama he's having. And then she went to that party and she was with that guy and she knows I don't like that guy. And then she did this. It was huge drama at the end of the email. And he said, you know what makes us harder than anything? He said, but we've been dating each other for two years and we still haven't gotten to meet each other yet. Whoa, this is what's going on. People think that there's such a thing as online dating, when there is not. There's online meeting, but dating must happen face to face. And so if you are face to face, I think it's gotta be clear with commitment. DTR, define the relationship. There's so many girls I meet are dating, so many girls I meet are not dating, and all the rest of them don't even know if they are dating or not dating. And you'll be like, well, you guys dating? And she's like, well, we went on a date, but we're not dating. You know, we're seeing each other, but we're not official. We're not a boyfriend and girlfriend, but we're definitely a thing. Okay, like, what is that? You know, like a thing like grows out of the side of your foot like a bunion. Like, what is a foot? Thing, like, you get those removed. Like, what, do you, what is a thing? And because ultimately, and what happens, I think, is the girls will have these slumber parties in their dorm till like 2 o'clock in the morning where they sit up with their sweatpants and their hairs in the bun and they got their moco frappo lappuccinis or whatever. And they're like, 
so are, are you and Ryan seeing each other or not? Well, I mean, he said this, but I don't know if he meant that. Well, maybe he meant that about her, not you. Well, I don't know. Well, maybe, he, let's outline the sentence. Maybe the verb was modifying a prepositional phrase. You know, and. She's ripping her hair out, trying to figure out the status of the relationship. And what's the guy doing? Like he's like like playing Guitar Hero by himself in the dorm. Like he's got he got no clue that she, she needs him to speak. But the problem is, like we guys, I mean, we're not great natural communicators. I mean, it's it's God's fault. Uh, it, no, it's, it's true. It's true. They, they, they say the, the male embryo, at about six to eight weeks of gestation, the male embryo's brain gets marinated in testosterone. And part of the brain that would otherwise be devoted to communication skills are actually destroyed. Uh, and it's replaced with cells having to do with sexuality and aggression and other things. So ultimately, it's God's fault. But what this means is, on a daily basis, the, a typical woman speaks three times as many words as guys do, starting at the age of two. You can see this in a sandbox. Watch the little girls. Sally said to Jessica that Jessica let her. Look at the boys, they have trucks. They're like, boom. <laughs> boom, boom. You know, and, you know, it, it, it doesn't change much after you get married, I'm telling you. I mean, it's pretty much the same level of communication. So for most guys, the average male speaks 7,000 words a day. The average female is 20,000 words a day, which means for most guys, we hit our quota at lunchtime. You know, and then like you get home and your wife was like, oh, how's the big meeting? Good. <laughs> well, how's the big conference call with the bishops? Fine. She's like, well, let me tell you about my day. She sells like 19,000 words to go. It's like sipping through a fire hydrant to like absorb all of this. But the challenge that this presents in relationships is so often the men don't speak and then the woman doesn't know what he's thinking. I think what's also fascinating about the male brain, the, the woman's brain they found has a very high level of neurological activity going on 24 hours a day. Her brain is constantly buzzing, stuff going on and thinking. They found the male brain actually goes into periods of hibernation during the daytime. Um, that, uh, and like, and, and you girls have seen this, you know, you know that look in his face where the girlfriend's like, you know, honey, what are you thinking? And he's like, hmm. nothing. No, honey, you can't be thinking nothing. Like, what are you thinking? Like, uh, like, no, like, I'm thinking about nothingness. And like, what are you not telling me? Like, no, like, I'm serious. Well, what are you feeling? Uh, I'm hungry. Like, no, like, like, what do you desire? Pizza. I, I, oh, come on, like. Like, tell me an emotion. Like, what do you fear? It's like, I'm, I'm afraid of this conversation. That is what I fear, you know? And, and so, you know, we're not, we're not great at detecting emotions. A lot of guys don't even know something's wrong unless you're physically crying. And he's like, oh, something's wrong. Oh, good. You know, but the, the women, because the woman has feminine genius, the woman's brain can actually hear sounds that are imperceptible to the man's brain. I've seen this in my marriage. I mean, I remember my wife's like, honey, the baby's about to wake up and start crying. Like, and the baby starts crying. I'm like, how did you do that? I'm like, I'm like I can't even hear him when he is crying. Uh, and you can perceive this. And so I, one challenge that this presents is the woman is expecting like, okay, talk. Like, what are you thinking? Like, what are you feeling? What's going on here? And we don't know that that's going on in her, and it creates a lot of unnecessary angst in her heart for clarity. But if guys can know, okay, 
Part of being a gentleman is just, just let her know where I stand. Let her know what I'm thinking. Kind of define that relationship so she doesn't have to be sitting there in limbo. And I think if we just know these specifics, and I, again, it's not because I've, I've done these things terrifically in my own life, but if we just get these specifics down, dating becomes a little bit easier. So that's point number four, make the commitment clear. Point number five is just keep the relationship pure. And I think a challenge that would happen on a campus like this, I mean, yeah, hookups happen and this and that, but I think the challenge more often than not is justifying our lust because this relationship is more intense than any ones we've experienced in the past. Like, well, I can totally see myself marrying this person. I remember as a freshman here, I met this girl who was a sophomore, you know, we started dating, I think into the second semester, and like, I had never met, I mean, the Franciscan woman, she is beautiful, she's intelligent, she's virtuous, and I was like, wow, like, I've never met somebody, I know, this is her, this is my future wife, you know, and I knew she was the one. And then she ended up breaking up with me, and then she ended up marrying a friend of mine. Well, that's okay. And I met another girl. We dated for two years, and then we broke up, and she married a friend of mine. And then I met another girl when I was in master's, and we dated for two years, ended up breaking up, and she married a friend of mine. And then, and then I met my wife when I was 24, and all of my, you know, you know friends were married to my ex-girlfriends by then, so she didn't have any choice but to stay with me at that point. But... Um, <laughs> So the moral of the story that I learned was you should only hang out with guys who are jerks and that way your girlfriends won't want to date them instead of you. Uh, but that, that's not the answer. So what I, I learned from this is like during these relationships, and, and one in particular, I remember, you know, it was so intense. Like physically, we're like, well, yeah, we're not having sex, so we're all good. But emotionally, we were light years ahead of ourselves. Emotionally, so married to one another to the point where we justified certain aspects of lust. We're thinking, well, come on, I mean, we're gonna be together for the rest of our lives anyway. And so it's not like I'm 15 years old in high school anymore. And we began to justify certain little things. And then eventually when it didn't work out, we remained friends and years later, she got married and I received a wedding invitation. And I went to her wedding and I remember standing in the back of the church and they say, we'd like to announce for the first time, Mr. and Mrs. Everybody's clapping, I'm clapping. And then she starts coming down the aisle with my friend. And then it dawned on me like, wow, I have been that intimate with another man's wife. And it dawned on me like, maybe she was never mine no matter how much I knew that we would meant to be. And so often what we do is we confuse the destiny of a relationship with the intensity of the present emotions. When in reality, if I do feel as strongly about her, how much I love her, it should incline me to be more pure in the relationship instead of less. And obviously this can be difficult, but I think you know one goal that we should have in mind that if you don't end up marrying this person, their future spouse should be able to come up to you give you a big hug one day and just say, thank you for making my husband or wife a better man or a better woman. That if we can keep that in the back of our minds, the relationship is gonna be stronger. Because so often I think we justify stuff. Remember one guy came up to me, he's like, Jason, he said, look, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, but he's like, dude, I love her so much. He's like, I'd, I'd die for her. I'm like, really, you died for your girlfriend? He's like, oh, I would absolutely die for her. And he's like, yeah, if someone put a gun to her head, I would actually tell them to shoot me instead. That's how much I love her. I said, okay, you die for her, do it. And he's like, what do, what do you mean? I said, look, Nobody's gonna be shooting your girlfriend unless she's involved in organized crime or some Mexican drug cartel, which, which in case means you need to make better relationship decisions, but no one's gonna be shooting your girlfriend. Like, you don't have to protect her from the mafia. You, you gotta protect her from yourself, from the temptations, the lust. That's where the death needs to happen. I mean, I remember on our wedding day, there was a little boy sitting in the back of the church. He'd never been to a wedding before, and he was just amazed by all the liturgy and the symbolism, and he kept asking, what does this mean, what does that mean? And he said, Dad, why is Kristalina wearing that glowing, beautiful white dress? And he said, oh, because today is the happiest and most joyful day of her life. And the kid's like, oh, okay. And he's like, Dad, how comes Jason wearing all black then? <laughs> it's a fair question. Because black represents death. 
It means to die to ourselves for love of another. And I knew one guy did this on, on his, you, you've been to weddings before, you know common tradition is, you know, the bride sits down after the wedding and the groom kind of reaches up her dress, grabs her garter, pulls it down and throws it to a bunch of like slobbering single guys who fight over it as a good luck charm. And so this guy, and this has started to take off in Christian circles where one guy was like, yeah, that's, that's not how I want to introduce my bride to my friends and my family. I'm going to shake it up a little bit. So she sits down and the whole wedding party comes around and then he gets down in front of her and he pulls out a pitcher of water in a bowl, takes off her shoe and washes it and washes her feet like estrogen, uh, washes <laughs> her feet as Christ washed the feet of his bride, the church, on the night before he gave his life for her. And this guy was not putting on a show, you know, for his wedding guests. Like, this is actually how he thought his bride deserved to be served. Because in marriage, there's so much dying to self. I mean, honestly, marriage is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, by far. St. Francis de Sales said marriage is the greatest form of mortification on earth, where there are more occasions to dying to self than in any other vocation, constantly dying to ourselves, of having to like, like I knew a guy got married and his friend said, oh, he's married a month. And he's like, dude, how's married life? And he's like, oh, he's like, well, what's the matter? He's like, man, I never knew I was so selfish until I got married. It brought these, these, these things up into the surface that I know God needs to heal in me. And I remember one time my wife and I weren't getting along and I remember being in prayer and just being like, God, like, like who's right here? Like, God, who's right? Like, is she right or am I right? Because I'm pretty sure I'm right, you know? But if she's right, tell me she's right. I mean, is she wrong or am I right? And, and God's like, it doesn't matter. Love. And I'm like, oh, that's so dissatisfying. Um, <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll, go, I'll love. But, but is she right or am I right? And, and, <laughs> But so this, this dying to self is something that's got to happen. And it can begin in the dating relationship with these desires that come up. And it's like, okay, you can die. You don't need to be acted out upon. Just because I want to act out on this, I don't need to have that tonight because of love for her. And I think our goal should be like the book of Tobit. You see Tobiah. And in the Old Testament, guys would get married 18 years old or so. As soon as you could take care of family, you could, you could have one. And Tobit, Tobiah, on his wedding night, is about to consummate the marital union with his bride. To my knowledge, it's the only place in scripture where a husband and wife say a prayer before they make love. And he says, sister, get up. And they get up and he says, let's pray. And they pray to God and he says, God, Father, mercies, you know I have called this wife to, my, to me, not because of lust. I've chosen her not because of lust, but because of a noble purpose. Call your mercy down on her and I. Let us live together to a happy old age. So what you've got here is probably an 18-year-old guy looking God in the face and saying, you know this isn't lust. Call down your mercy on us. It's for a noble purpose. He's not saying, you know this, there's no sexual desire here. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, you know this has not been infected with lust. And so I think our goal is that on our wedding night, we could be able to say that with our brides, to say to God, you know this isn't lust. You know we've begged for years to, to heal that in us. And it doesn't mean that you have some perfectly pure heart. It just means that our hearts, I think, are directed in the right way. And on our wedding day, I remember standing in the front of the church, and I could see my wife's silhouette behind the stained glass doors. And then they swung open, and the violin starts playing. And it's like, I don't, I don't see visions. I've never heard God's voice. But it's like, I could see almost like God's hands behind her, like saying, here she is. You know, I give her to you now. And she walked down the aisle with her foster father because she never had a dad that was around. And he was a big guy. He's like 240-pound English rugby player. And he walks up, and he just gave me this big handshake, and he just like engulfed my hand in his. And he just, big handshake, but it's like, okay, I was her man, now you're her man. At that point, the transition takes place. 
But until then, her father is her man. I don't care if she's 15 or she's 25 years old. And you honor him as the father, as the man in her life, until that handshake takes place. And I think if we do this, what we find is a deeper love. Because we get so hooked up on this, like, well, how far is too far? I mean, can you do this with a girl? Can you do that with a girl? But that's not where we're going to find the standard. I mean, the standard is in the first letter of John, 1 John 3, that those of us who hope in the resurrection and hope, have this hope in heaven make ourselves pure even as he is pure. He's saying the standard is that you would be as pure as God the Father, that you would be as pure as the most holy trinity. It's like, whoa. Well, I mean, Jace, I mean, come on. I mean, seriously, how realistic is this? But I think in our hearts, we're not afraid of demanding answers. I think we even long for them because we get locked up in this how far is too far thing. But it's ridiculous because the church isn't saying, okay, don't go to first base. You can't go to second base. The church is like, no, God wants you to hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth in the World Series and win the whole panic. You know, because he wants us to experience the thing, but we take it in bits and pieces. You see this with cohabitation today. They think, oh, you're going too far. No, you're not going too far. You're only going halfway. When God is saying, make a total gift. And people say, well, how are we going to know if we're compatible with each other? Well, look, compatible comes from Latin, compati, which means to suffer with. Which means if you're not willing to suffer with someone until death you part, you're not compatible. I'm like, I knew we weren't compatible a week after marriage. I mean, you get back from a honeymoon. She moves all her stuff in my bathroom. You know, she had, I mean, that's like a hostile takeover. Like when a girl gets in there, like... And the, and the band of showers, she got like 24 bottles. She's got like pumice foot polish and kneecap remover and like, you know, all this, you know, this stuff. But you, you know, you know, marriage, you're not gonna be compatible. It's because girls are weird and guys are entirely normal. But, uh, you know, you're not gonna be compatible, but you, you deal with it and you sacrifice. And so I, I think, I think with, with marriages today, I mean, I'll be honest with you, like, I was so discouraged, like when I graduated Steubenville, how many of my friends ended up getting divorced? And it was like a punch in the gut. Because like, dude, I mean, we're there in daily mass. I mean, we're there doing this. They're praying. They're, I mean, everything seemed to make sense. Like, what happened? And I think so often what happens is sometimes we over-spiritualize marriage. And it's kind of weird coming from a guy like me in a place like this, but over-spiritualizing it of thinking, okay, well, we're so spiritually compatible that it's meant to be. You know, we discerned, we did a novena, we got a rose from St. Therese, you know, we're ready to go. And so often we look to things like novenas to kind of shortcut the authentic discernment process, getting cut off sometimes from our own family members and kind of over-spiritualizing this. And I remember there were a couple of priests sitting around and they were talking about this, like at their parish, like some of the good couples were getting divorced. Some of the bad couples were getting divorced. They didn't have a lot of marriage prep and some were sticking together and like, what is the key? Like, what is, what is the difference between all these couples coming into the marriage? Who's making it? Who's making it last? And a priest, I think, hit it on the nail. He said, the, the marriages that last are the couples are willing to work at it, period. That's it. Because it's going to be a lot of work. But if we can enter into marriage with this understanding, okay, this isn't going to be all sunshine, rainbows, and lollipops. This is going to be a little bit difficult, sometimes very difficult. Sometimes for better, sometimes for the worst. You know, I knew of a guy named Marty who lived down in Louisiana, and he's hanging out with his wife at home. And uh, armed burglar walks into the house, pulls out a gun, you know, give, me, give me the money. And they're like, we don't have any cash. The cash is in the car. And the wife is like, my purse is in the car. And the burglar's like, let's go get it. And so he follows her into the garage. And this husband is like, I'm not going to leave an armed burglar, an armed man, with my wife in the garage. And so he follows the burglar. And when he sees him coming up behind him in the garage, spins around, shoots him, and he's now paralyzed for, neck, for life, for the neck down. Lives in a wheelchair, and his wife just absolutely takes care of him. And you know what? That husband, he is so fine with that. He's like, he would never live with himself if she's the one who even got shot. And he kind of stayed, hung back a little bit to cover, cover himself. He knows, okay, that's what my manhood was for. My manhood was meant to be given as a gift. 
This is why John Paul told us that your freedom is best measured by your capacity to love. Anything that holds you back from loving, to that extent you are not free. I do not care if you're doing everything that you want. It does not mean that you are free. The freedom is measured by your capacity to love. And so if we can understand things this way, I will understand, okay, now, okay, now I'm getting some tools of what I can use. So how do we do it in the end? I would say in college, you gotta surround yourself with good friends. You gotta be accountable to people because you're gonna get picked off if you try to do it on your own. Likewise with your family, don't get cut off from your family. Make sure if you meet a good guy, meet a good girl, bring her home for Thanksgiving, bring her home for Christmas. Mom, dad, what do you think? Because in high school, my parents were the rivals. You gotta, hey, if you're gonna have any fun, can't be around mom and dad. But then when I got to college, I'd bring the girls home. My mom, dad, what do you think? Like, do you think she'd be the one? I began to tap in a little bit to that wisdom. And so you've got the fellowship. Hold on to that. If you can look into households, it's the most beautiful kind of fellowship I think a man or a woman can have during these years of formation. But beyond the brotherhood and the sisterhood, your own interior prayer life, devotion to Our Lady, the rosary, the sacraments, go to confession often while you're here. Find a good priest who really knows what's going on and stick with them. Don't go priest hopping. Oh, he's a priest from Vietnam. I'm going over there. He's not gonna know what's going on. You know, and I did that. I remember once, and, you know, here there's a priest visiting from France. I'm like, oh, sweet, he's from France. I'll never see him again. Perfect. And that's a bad attitude. So I go to confession, and it was a big one. I was like, Father, I did. And I laid it out. And he says to me, he's like, Jason. <laughs> he says, he says, for your penance, he says, I want you to tell Jesus that he has a problem. I'm like, what? He's like, I want you to tell Jesus that he has a problem. I go, you want me to tell Jesus that he has a problem? And he's like, wee oui, wee, oui, yes, uh -huh. uh, And I'm like, I'm like, but I don't understand. Why does Jesus have a problem? And he goes, well, do you belong to Jesus? I said, yeah, I belong to Jesus. And he's like, well, Jesus has you. You are a big mess. You are a problem. Jesus has you. He has a problem. And I'm like, oh, oh cool. But what? I mean, but, but what a beautiful way to look at our sins. Just, just don't take yourself so seriously sometimes. That's why St. Francis de Sales said, have patience with the whole world. But first of all, with yourself. Because all you do sometimes is count your defeats. You ever notice that? I messed up here, I messed up there. An authentic examination of conscience at night is not spending the bulk of the time looking at your failures. That is not a healthy examination of conscience. A healthy evening prayer and examination of conscience is counting your blessings. See where God worked in that day, where he was present, the gifts he gave you, thanksgiving, and those sins. But you don't spend, okay, let me count all my faults and go to bed. That's just not healthy spirituality. And so I think so often the sacrament of confession, we can give, be given encouragements. It's not just about your fails. Your presence in confession itself is a victory. And I remember when I was in college, when I was in master's, I was living off campus, and I came home one day, and just shows confession be a little hard. I come home, and my roommate, he was from Italy and California, and he, he was sitting there on the couch, and he's watching TV. I go upstairs, do some homework, come down, he's still watching TV. I went to the field house, worked out, came home, he's still on TV. And he was watching the World Cup, and for Italians, that's like a religion. They watch it for like a month straight without blinking. And so I, I, I said to him, hey, Dario, you know, you got to get up, like do something, like you're being idle. And, and he's like, idol? Like the TV is an idol? And he didn't understand. I'm like, no, 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 not idolater. You know, but like, you know, just kind of sitting around, go do something. But he was kind of convicted of the thought that it's kind of like an idolatry of just like sitting around. Now, he kind of had a, a bit of an Italian accent mixed with a California accent. And he went to confession with the priest who was hard of hearing. And he said, you know, hey, you holy father, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of uh, adultery. Excuse me? Yeah, you know, I was gu guilty of adultery. And the priest's like, oh. And he's like, yeah, you know, it's not a big deal. It's just something to do after school. And I'm like, what? what? And he's like, 
but it is a big deal. Well, come on, Father. I mean, it's just, I mean, you know, sometimes friends come over and, uh, you know, and my roommate kept walking in, told me I needed to just cut it out a little. And the priest's like, ah! You know, and I'm not... I'm not sure that they ever resolved the communication problem. We got a massive penance for watching World Cup. Uh, but, but, you know, so it's, it's okay if it's a little awkward, okay? It's okay if it's a little bit painful. Just go and, and, and go often to the Sacrament of Reconciliation. It was beautiful today, going in and out of the port, watching so many of you in there, just soaking in those graces throughout the day through our Lord. And what comfort it brings me at night to know, like, hey, if I'm back at home, changing some kids' diapers at three o'clock in the morning, there's some Franciscan student on their knees before the Eucharist at any time of the day. I mean, what a blessing for the church to persevere in that. I finished writing a book on St. John Paul II. One of the best things I learned about him is that he could sense our Lord's presence. He could tell when the Blessed Sacrament was around because he was coming to visit Baltimore. And before the Pope comes, the Vatican sends a team to get ready for his arrival. The guy who's in charge is a priest named Father Roberto Tucci, a Jesuit. So he shows up in Baltimore and he's kind of looking over the Archbishop's residence where the Pope is going to walk through and have some rest. And he says to Father Michael White, now down this hallway, all these doors open to different rooms, but one opens to the Blessed Sacrament Chapel. So he said, when the Pope comes, you, Father Michael White, make sure that that door is closed. We cannot let the Holy Father know the Blessed Sacrament is here. And Father Michael, like, why are you hiding the Eucharist from the Pope? Uh, and and he, said, well, he said, well, here's the problem. He says, whenever the Holy Father finds a chapel, he wants to go into the chapel. And he gets lost in prayer, and it ruins the entire schedule. Because we have this thing down to the minute. And so he says, right now what we're doing is we reroute his Pope mobile away from Catholic churches. Because if he sees one, he gets out, and the schedule is toast. So he says... So just when the Pope comes, all I'm asking is make sure the door is closed. I said, okay. So he shut the door. Holy Father shows up. John Paul, walk, he's walking down the hallway, and he passes the door, and he stops. And he turns around. He looks at the door. He looks over at Father Tucci, and he shook his head and wagged his finger at him. And he turned around, opened the door, and went right in. And Father Michael White was astonished. He said he's never been here before. There is no way he could have known, but he sensed our Lord was present. And I think of that image from Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, after our, Jesus is scourged, that Our Lady is over the pavement, leaning down, sensing Our Lord's presence underneath. And Our Lord, our, our John Paul II, had that Marian heart, I think, that could sense the presence of her son. And lest you think that that was just some coincidence, he did the same thing the very next day at the seminary across the street, that he could sense Our Lord's presence. Something here is great that will teach us the meaning of love, that this is my body given up for you. And to help you to live out this lifestyle, we have brought a bunch of gifts to give to you at the university. There's going to be a table on the back that is just filled with all sorts of goodies to take home. Everything is, uh, everything is free to take. Uh, we have got a bunch of CDs. These CDs are free to take. They're also free to burn. So you can give them to a friend, a future ex-boyfriend, whatever you need. You just pass those on. And so, no, I have more hope for you. Uh, but... So different talks, love or lust is the typical chastity talk we give. Uh, what's so great about being Catholic? How to date your soulmate? How to save your marriage before meeting your spouse? Like some of that was in tonight. Uh, different one by Christopher West, uh, sexual virtue. You'll notice on the cover of this is a bare, oh, a sculpture of a bare-breasted woman. Now what are we doing putting bare-breasted women on the covers of chastity CDs? Well, if you choose to go over to the Vatican and you look over across from John Paul's tomb on the opposite wall is the statue for the Catholic Church for the virtue of chastity. And it's a bare-breasted woman holding the horn of a unicorn and, and, a, and a flower. 
And, and the bare-breasted woman is a symbol of the virtue of charity. And the point is, for human sexuality to be as God designed, the virtue of charity must unite the masculine strength with the feminine beauty through the virtue of love. If the virtue is absent, it is going to be destroyed. She's the one that must unite. And so on this CD, he does a beautiful job, Christopher West, of talking about that. Different CDs on green sex, on chastity inside of marriage. My wife's CD, Women Made New, on how she starts over. Different CDs on pornography. So if you know someone who needs that, slide it under the door and be like, I'm not judging, but you better listen to that 30 times. <laughs> um, uh, um, this one, free copies of How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul, 21 Secrets for Women. And some people are like, where's the book for guys? Well, guys don't read. Uh, so, no, they do. So, so we have a book for the guys right here, okay? Uh, so, larger print pictures. Uh, so, and then another one my wife wrote for the girls. Uh, then one write, I wrote called Theology of His Body, Theology of Her Body. Uh, I put the books together because I figured a guy would rather read about a girl's body than his own anyway, so stick those together. Um, Pure Faith, which is our prayer book. If you've got an iPhone, you can get it at the iTunes store for 90, 99 cents, but those are free. Um, book, on, a little pamphlet on our ministry, and then a bunch of books, copies of St. John Paul the Great. And then, um, and then as one announcement before I wrap up is uh, that after the talk tonight at uh, 9.30 um, in the parking lot outside of Colby Clare, uh, guys and girls are going to be doing the red light ministry, where the guys are going to be going over to a strip club in Weirton uh, to pray. Uh, and uh, they're going to be doing a rosary. They're not there to judge. They're not there to get in debates. They're just there to pray for the people in that building. And the women, meanwhile, of this ministry are going to be in adoration praying for the guys while they're doing this ministry. And if you're interested in teaming up with this, at 930, it's going to be starting over at Colby Clare. And I think, I don't know if they do that every single week or whatever, but, you know, talk to those guys. So, you know, wrapping up is this. You know, we've hit a lot of stuff. And uh, I'll be available afterwards to chit-chat. I've got to drive up to Cleveland tonight, so I can't stay too late. So, yeah. Um, so i got a couple talks tomorrow. But, you know, in the end, you know, I think the whole purpose of purity is not to, like, repress our desires and pretend like they don't exist, but to acknowledge their strength and their power and literally just to beg God for the grace to love as he loves. And I think if we begin to do this, then what we're going to do is we're going to begin to see God in the woman, God in the man, and then to me, it is the greatest form of evangelization to take the invisible love of God and make it visible in the way that a man loves a woman and a woman loves a man. You guys have been a wonderful audience. I love you, and I'll be praying for you. God bless you guys very much. Faith and Reason Podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.